Senator McCaskill, welcome. Thank you. We're so delighted to have you here on the campus of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It is great to be here. Yes, and um, you've, we've not really been formally introduced. I'm Pat Parker. I am director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. I was previously chair of the Department of Communication. Oh, okay. Yes, and the College of Arts and Sciences. And so it's such a thrill to be able to interview you. I know that you've been interviewed by such heavyweights, and uh, but here you will uh, get a chance to, to talk with a, um, a fellow uh, well, we're both from the South. Let's just say that. There I've, we go. I was born and raised in Arkansas, and so I know that oh, you're in the South as well. So we're neighbors. There we go. That's right. So welcome. Um, so delighted that you're here for the uh, the Will Lecture. And I have about five or six questions. I think you saw some of the questions in advance. So we'll just jump right okay, in. Okay, sounds good. All right. You've recently faced some scrutiny uh, that comes along with being a woman in politics. Um, and I, I'm positive that our, our listening audience would would learn to love to learn from you in terms of what do you believe is important um, for women um, and why do you believe it's important for women to be strategic and own it? You know, one of the things that has always been a head scratcher to me was how uncomfortable women are with their ambition. You know, I guess I was just raised by a mother and father who um, told me every day, almost, that I was beyond perfect and that I could be anything I wanted to be, and they expected me to be something big. And so I really um, was quite an ambitious young woman, and I never realized how bad it was seen, how badly it was seen by others. And I'll never forget this, Pat. I was on stage um, just off stage in New York for a giant gathering of women. And I was, you know, I had been asked to come and speak on a panel. And there were two women out on the stage with a moderator that were uh, the event before my event. And these two women, if I said your name, their names, you would know them immediately. Mm-hmm. They have succeeded in the very top levels of media in this country. Um, they are everyday names. And they were asked if they were ambitious. And it was a humma, hanna, 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 hanna. And I was sitting backstage <laughs> going, I mean, this is crazy. They're in front of all these women. Why aren't they just saying, well, of course I'm ambitious. Yeah. But, you know, one of them said, well, I don't think I like to look at it that way. I like to look at it that I'm a team player and... And I got out on stage, and it was time for me to begin talking. And I said, listen, I know what I was planning on saying first, but I just want to tell everybody here, I'm really ambitious. <laughs> I am, like, mega ambitious. Yeah. And I think it is um, really important that women – we have made a lot of progress as women in politics. There are many more women today that are running. There are more women holding office, still not enough. Um, we are still way behind in corporate boardrooms. But I do believe that one of the things that holds us back is when we look in the mirror um, and we see our reflection and we don't have a level of confidence and comfort with being more ambitious than the next guy. It doesn't mean that you are the B word just because you're ambitious. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, what do you make of that, especially the way you set that up in terms of, uh, and you talk about this in your in, in the first chapter of your book, I mean, in terms of these women who are so 
who should be exuding confidence and 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 you know proudly talking about that what do you make of that ambivalence i think i think there is um i think women still even to some extent uh, even though we've overcome a lot of it are still socialized um that it is somehow not as attractive to want to elbow your way to the front of the room. Um, men don't have that problem. I think men are born with sharp elbows. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think for women who have come up, especially in fields that are dominated by men, they want almost to be seen as that their ascendancy was just because of hard work and effort and merit. By the way, that is absolutely true that the women I referred to in the anecdote, they got there because of hard work and because they were really good at what they did and because they deserved it. It was meritorious. But to say that, like, for example, to admit that I was strategically involved in getting myself elected homecoming queen I couldn't admit that until after I'd spent 40 years in politics, um, that I strategically decided what law school to go to based on which law school would be best for me, not in terms of academia, but rather in terms of helping me with my political campaigns. Yes, I think to, to be seen as that strategic seems um, unfortunately malevolent to too many women. Yeah. And I think being strategic about where you're going in your career is a huge part of it. Maybe not quite as important as working hard and being prepared, but it certainly is right up there. Yes, absolutely. You certainly have some role models that uh, have demonstrated that for you. And, and um, in your book, uh, Plenty Ladylike, I love the, love the title, especially within the context of what you develop, the themes that you develop there. You, you talk about your mother and you, you, you share about how uh, both your mother, Betty Ann McCaskill, um, and Harry S. Truman uh, were important figures in your life. Uh, what makes you um, most inspired by both of them? And I'll start with your mother first, please. You know, my mom was, um, was quite a character. Um, she never met a stranger. Uh, she was wildly embarrassing to me growing up um, because of her outsized personality you know we would back in the days when they used to pump your gas at gas stations you probably are you old enough to remember yes those days? i am you know we would always shrink down in the seat because by the time we pulled out of the gas station she knew the gas station attendant's name how many children he had where they went to school where he went to church um what they had in common in terms of music and we would all just go but uh, a lot of that rubbed off on me um you know, this phrase, she's never met a stranger. I like to think that I, at least I tried to emulate that uh, in my life, that um, everyone is, somebody is a treasure that you should meet and try to um, become friends with, even if it's for a brief moment in time. She also was very strong way before her time. Mm. Uh, she was a political science major. Um, back when most people that were going to college that were women were um, either nurses or educators. Um, she uh, went over to the law school when my younger brother, my youngest sibling, went to kindergarten. We lived in Columbia, Missouri and at the University of Missouri, and she went over to the law school that I later attended. And the dean of the law school um, 
listened to her talk about how she wanted to go to law school at that point. And he wrote down the name and phone number of a psychiatrist to refer her to. Um, so I, you know, she, she, she was opinionated and strong and um, taught me about politics. She and my dad both were, they weren't big political deals, but you know, I was stuffing envelopes and yeah. saying trick or treat and vote for JFK when I was seven years old. And that wasn't because I really knew why I was saying trick or treat and vote for JFK, but I knew mom and dad wanted me to say it. And so um, that's really, you know, and, and frankly, the thing she probably taught me more than anything was not to look past someone. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's the person who's serving you dinner at a banquet or whether it's an elevator operator, or whether it's a parking lot attendant, um, or whether um, it's somebody you're talking to and you see somebody more important over their shoulder. She taught me very much that respect and dignity is something you give everyone you meet, Hmm. not just the people you think you need to give it to. And I think that was an an incredibly valuable lesson. Now, Harry Truman, (laughs) I admired him for a different reason. I used to watch Meet the Press when I was growing up, and I always was just kind of shaking my head because the folks that were from the United States Senate could talk for about three paragraphs and say absolutely nothing. (laughs) They'd wool it around, right? They'd go this way, well, on the other hand, and then therefore, and, you know, they'd never really say it. Harry Truman never had that problem. I began reading about Harry Truman and his career in high school. And I became just a fangirl because he was way before his time in terms of being plain spoken and using a quarter word when he could instead of a $5 word and speaking his mind even when it was unpopular. And while I understand people who, when I profess my fandom of Harry Truman, there are those in my party that have pushed back and said, but, you know, the bomb, you know, he dropped the bomb. I said, yeah, but he also integrated the military. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you, polling support for integrating the military when he did it was probably somewhere around 10% of the country. He also recognized Israel. Um, he did some things that were very controversial in its time. And he left Washington as a very unpopular guy. Mm-hmm. He only became popular um, after everybody figured out uh, what a straight shooter he was and how what a breath of fresh air he really was in our American political system. So um, I tried to answer questions and not beat around the bush um, because I know that's what Harry would have done. Yeah. So I want to um, thank you so much for sharing your, your you know, your reflections on on these two influential people in your life. And I want to go back to to some of the things that you mentioned uh, starting back with your mother, some of the, the, the things that you mentioned that, uh, you know, her personality and that you said that, you know, she never met a stranger. And, and, and one of the lessons you said you learned was that, you know, not to look down at someone or, or to preserve their dignity. How does that shape your political career? How does that shape you, you know, as you're starting to get into the, this game, you know, as, um, knowing the challenges that, that are there? Um, how does that knowledge shape you? And how did it shape you, and how does it continue to shape you? Well, first of all, there were several times early in my career that my mom's lessons to me paid off. When I um, was an assistant DA in Kansas City, and 
I was really the only woman in the office, and I was trying felony cases, and we had elevator operators. And I befriended the elevator operators. And one of them was, um, you know, I know Precious was elderly, but I have no idea how old she was because, gosh darn it, older black women's skin is just amazing. I just have to say it, okay? Um, She may have been 80, but she sure didn't look it. And she operated this elevator, and she and I became buddies. And one day, uh, I was known for, at times, getting in trouble with judges because I spoke my mind maybe when I shouldn't have. And I think that word had kind of gotten out through the courthouse. And so I got in the elevator one day, and I was supposed to be in court in an, on another floor in the building, and the elevator was jammed. I mean, it was full. It, I got in, and I looked over at Precious, and I said, Precious, I'm in trouble. I'm supposed to be in Division 10, like in, you know, five minutes ago. And with that, she just looked at me and winked. <laughs> she did this on the elevator express to my floor and got out, and I ended up getting there on time. And so that was one of many lessons. I mean, getting an endorsement of a group where the big leaders of the group had thrown in with my opponent in a very difficult primary when I was running early in my career. And I decided I would go to person by person through the membership. Nobody did that. Nobody called each individual member of the group and said, can I come have coffee with you? So working the group instead of the leadership that was already predisposed to be for the guy that I was running against, and the night of the endorsement meeting, there was an uprising, and the membership rose up against their leaders and endorsed me. And it was um, another moment when I realized that if you if – you, treat people and give them the power they deserve, um, it's way more likely that they're going to trust you with their support. And um, I I think that helped me. And I could name lots of other examples besides Precious in the Elevator. But, you know, they told me to knock on doors in certain neighborhoods because they said other neighborhoods in your district, they're all going to vote for you anyway. Well, that's a good example of what I'm talking about. That's yeah. calling that's calling taking people for granted. The people they were referring to, by and large, were African American people. They were black people. And so I said, I'm gonna start there. So I started knocking doors in the, the black parts of my the black communities within my district. And it it, it was great. Yeah. I learned a lot and um it it made me stronger and better as an elected official. Right. So relationships are so key to Having a political, a successful political career, and and um, engaging with with uh, uh, communities that are going to impact you. If you don't like people, yeah, you know, if one thing, if you like money, don't go into politics, and if you don't like people, don't go into politics because yeah. it is a people business at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, the second person you mentioned um, and and expounded on was um, Harry Truman, and um, I, I'd like to take some of your examples that you gave and with us into this next question, which is what would you say was the biggest challenge in your political career and why? And before you answer again, you mentioned this contradiction of um, President Truman being the president who is associated with the, with the atom bomb, with the bomb dropping. He's also the president who's um, accomplished the integration of the military as you know, something that really influenced civil rights and, and movement there. So those 
contradictory things. And you talked about how that was most likely a challenge and that it wasn't polling very well when he made those decisions. So I'd like for you to think about challenges that you've had uh, in your political career in that context. And you said that, you you know, what would Harry do? So, (laughs) well, I honestly, Harry, Harry had a lot of growth um, on issues. Um, When Harry Truman was a young politician and a younger man in Jackson County and growing up in Independence, Missouri, um, I would not say that you wouldn't call Harry woke. Uh, Harry was about as far from woke as you could possibly be. And by woke, just to clarify. Well, I mean, he was, I mean, I think he had a lot of bias about black people growing up. And then to to, to be woke is to be conscious of how racism or bias can be detrimental. Exactly. I think he, he was, he was not someone who was sensitive to the unfairness and the inequities in the American, um, in American life when it came to, um, black Americans and how they were being treated. And I think he grew to understand um, how unfair it was. And there was a number of examples. Um, Another example that is one of my favorites is there was a Native American that was being buried with honors. And um, as the burial was about to occur, and this was somewhere in the South, they stopped the burial when they realized it was a Native American and said this was a decorated war hero, said they wouldn't bury uh, this man because he wasn't white in this particular military cemetery. Well, Harry Truman had the body flown to Arlington and buried that man with full honors and his family, had them all flown to Washington. I think he arrived at that. Um, He learned. And I can think of issues in my career. I mean, I come from a very conservative state. I mean, you understand if you're from Arkansas – um, Missouri is not a place, I mean, there's a reason why we couldn't make up our mind in the Civil War. Um, frankly, it has gone way more red now. It's very much more conservative and Republican now than it was back when I was running. Um, but it, at the time, it was, there were many issues that were very difficult for me in Missouri. Um, some things I believed in very deeply, like a women's a woman's right to reproductive freedom. That was never a majority position in my state, but I held it and I won with it because there were other things I think I brought to those campaigns that voters, that appealed to voters. But I certainly made a transition, for example, on gay marriage. I mean, that would be a Harry Truman transition from me as a younger woman, not really understanding the depth of discrimination that you couldn't love some, you couldn't marry someone you loved. And how really, if you think about it, that's kind of weird. And so that was a transition I went through. Um, Immigration had parts of it that were hard for me. Uh, It's a hard state because most people in Missouri, you know, they were in denial that most of our crops a lot of our crops in Missouri were being um, were actually being processed with people from Mexico that were coming up either with work visas or illegally. And the farmers that were railing against immigration were also the ones that were paying them on the side to get all the cotton out of the ground and down in the boot heel. Um, so I, I'd say there were a number of issues where I I grew over time. There were also issues that I just had to buck up and take votes that were not popular at home and hope that I could emphasize the parts of my record that would appeal to more voters and they'd overlook that part. Um, But 
at the end of the day, you you gotta. I mean, those as I as my mother told me when before she passed away, she said, you know, what's the point of having the job if you don't make somebody mad? I mean, you can't really get anything done if you don't make somebody mad, right? So right. just you know, you don't have to have every vote. You just have to have one more than the other guy. Yeah. So try to stay true to yourself, and um, uh, even if you only get one more vote than the other guy, mm-hmm. um, you don't have to have everybody like you. And I think that that's part of the problem that's going on now is people are trying so hard to please the base of our of, of their party um, that they are unwilling to make those votes that are, quote-unquote, politically risky. Mm. You know, I was going to ask you about that. Um, it's It's really interesting to hear you talk about growth um, and how how the growth that you had on these issues because you know we want to hear we and when I say we I'm talking about citizens of, of our democracy engaged citizens of our democracy we want to hear um, our elected officials talk about growth um, and so I appreciate your candor in, in sharing that um, at the same time, I wonder how you square this um, philosophy um, of being true to yourself, uh, being willing to grow and learn on the issues um, with the current political climate, even within your own party, where you know you have to make these political calculations. I, I just want to hear you, you know, sort of speak to that. Um, and for someone who might be thinking about getting into politics, yeah, what advice would you give them in terms of trying to square that? Well, I think you need to be honest with the voters first. I never tried to pretend that I was not, for example, in favor of women's reproductive freedom. I never tried to pretend that I thought everybody carrying a concealed weapon was a good idea. Um, I never, it, 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 I didn't hide the views that many Missourians might have disagreed with uh, during campaigns. I mean, it's very hard to do that unless you're just going to outright lie about it. Um, and so I had that comfort that Missourians knew they elected a pro-choice United States senator. Um, that wasn't a secret. I had a pro-choice record for many, many years when I went to the United States Senate. Um, it doesn't keep it from being difficult when they're all up in your grill about, you know, when the people that disagree with you on that issue, because that's one that really divides people. I, I really, I'm, I'm really in a little bit, I mean, and I'm going to speak about that tonight mm-hmm. at, at this at this um, in the lecture. event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to speak about this in the lecture about bipartisanship and compromise and what has happened and how, why have the wheels come off and can we get them back on? Um, it is complicated how this has happened. And, and by the way, it has really happened fairly quickly because when I came to the United States Senate in 2007, the first amendment I passed on the floor of the Senate was um, an amendment giving collective bargaining to TSA agents. And I passed that amendment by a vote of 51 to 49. Now, no one would allow that to happen today because they would require 60 votes. That was back before this rigid partisanship kind of gripped the Senate. And I'm sure if if my friends that are, and I have many of them, that are Republican senators were here, they would want to blame Harry Reid. 
I kind of want to blame Mitch McConnell. But I think part of the problem is that our media today is so segmented and people now can go to a source for affirmation rather than information. So no one is getting the straight news and getting the facts. Everyone's going, the people who are most active and making the most noise in the system are in these calcified bubbles where they feed off each other, aren't we right? Oh, yeah, we're right. And, oh, yes, a horse wormer is okay for COVID. Oh, the vaccine's going to kill you. Or, oh, anybody who's not taking the vaccine is an idiot, you know, and depending on which side you're on. That's what really has shown me how political this has become. When you are politicizing a pandemic (laughs) where whether you wear a mask tells you who you voted for president, something is really wrong. (laughs) I mean, it is something's hinky. And we have got to really begin thinking about the fact that my Republican friends and, and frankly, all my Democratic friends that are in office, they all revere the Constitution and everybody needs to take a look at it because they drafted that thing to make us compromise. Yeah, I mean, the reason it's checks and balances is because they wanted everybody to compromise. Uh, the reason that one party can control the presidency and another party can control the legislative branch, most democracies don't have that. Most democracies, whatever whatever party wins the legislative race, controls the executive branch. Oh, no, no, no. Not our founding fathers. They wanted there to be compromise. And the fact that that has become such a dirty word is really sad to me. And it means our country is less stable because the changes in our laws maybe won't stick around as long. They're going to swing back and forth with the vicissitudes of those swing voters. And I think the last six years have shown those swing voters can be pretty fickle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we've just got a few minutes left. My goodness, this has gone by so fast. Um, and so I'm going to um, ask you a few um, questions that um, I, I wanted to, to know about. I, I, well, first, um, what would listeners be surprised to hear is your greatest accomplishment? You've had many accomplishments, but tell us something that might be surprising in terms of your uh, greatest I think accomplishment. my biggest accomplishment was drug courts. Um, when I came into the prosecutor's office as the elected DA in Kansas City, um, we were housing low-level drug offenders in jails at a huge cost to taxpayers, and none of them had ever hurt anyone. They had a public health addiction. I mean, addiction is a disease, and most of them were committing property crimes because they were addicted or nuisance crimes because they were addicted. And there were a few drug courts when I took over in 1992, but only like one or two. And most of them had been created by judges trying to alleviate crowded dockets. I was really one of the first prosecutors in the country to say, we're going to do a drug court. The police didn't want it. My staff didn't want it. Uh, The neighborhoods weren't sure why it was a good thing. And basically, it's it's a treatment module that is run by a court. So there is accountability. There is praise when someone does well. You could relapse and not get kicked out of the program as long as you were still trying. And that was the beginning of a real movement in this country. Now drug courts are everywhere. They are all across the world. I have traveled to, uh, to other countries to, to talk about them and help start them. And it is I know that we have a problem in this country with incarceration, 
But drug courts have made a difference. They've taken a lot of people out of a prison bed and put them in a treatment program where they really belong. And the moment that I knew that it worked is when we had a graduation about two years after we started the program. And the SWAT team that was so against it, because they're the ones that knocked down the doors of drug houses. Um, I looked in the back of the room at graduation, and there were a bunch of guys from the, the SWAT team that knocked down doors. Um, it was called Street Narcotics Unit. It was not really a SWAT team. It was a Street mm-hmm. Narcotics Unit. There was this new unit in uniform in the back of the courtroom for the graduation, standing and applauding the graduates. And I thought, okay, this is how you re- do good public policy around the problem of crime and drugs. Um, so that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of. And then, of course, my family. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Um, last question. I think that we'll have quite a few of our undergraduate students uh, listening. Can you briefly tell us what is your what was your favorite undergraduate uh, course and why or graduate course? Either one of those. Uh, well, there was no course in law school that was my favorite. <laughs> okay. So undergraduate was probably the American political party. Duh. Um, I, I had a professor that was wonderful, doc, Dr. David Luthold at the University of Missouri, and he um, he figured out that I was into it and was really good about encouraging me. In fact, he wrote a letter of reference for me for a summer program in Washington and said, and I still have it, said, she'll hold political office someday. Wow. So I'd say the American Political Party, that was my jam. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, you know, at the Institute of the Arts and Humanities, we support faculty. And so I love that you remembered your professor um, because that's what it's all about, coming to a university and having great teachers and then going out and doing great things, which is what you have done. Senator McCaskill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.